how can God use us to grow the kingdom? Uh, I'm on a Bible reading plan right now to read uh, the New Testament during the month of January, which means you read about nine chapters a day. And as I've gone through, I've underlined every time Jesus refers to the kingdom, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. It, it's a big word in the Bible, how we think kingdom. Because when you think kingdom, you're not thinking of self. You're not thinking of what about me and mine and ours. You're thinking others. So how does God use us to grow the kingdom? Well, one of the ways he does that is in our response to giving of ourselves, of our substance, of our time, of our talent, of our tithe. So how do we change the culture? How do we impact the kingdom? How do we participate in the kingdom? Well, if you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, it's about uh, 40% of the way into the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and you get to the last of 1 Corinthians. Paul actually wrote three letters to the Corinthians, one we do not have. He does refer to it, but this is considered the first letter to the Corinthians. Now, Corinth was a messed up church. I mean, it was a messed up church. It was the kind of church you would run from. They had all the gifts. They had all the blessings. They had had the Apostle Paul. But Paul was constantly having to rebuke this church and deal with them over immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. I mean, you name it. This was not the church that you wanted to advertise, hey, come look at us. We look like Jesus. Because they didn't. But in that letter to these Corinthians, he begins to talk toward the end about the power of the resurrection. And, and he takes this troubled church, this carnal church, and he teaches them the greatest truth in all of human history. That Christ lived and died and rose from the grave. I mean, you, there is no greater truth. There is no other truth that changes lives like that truth that Christ died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And because of his death and resurrection, we have life. And so how does that affect kingdom? Well, it, it's kind of interesting when you look at this letter, and if you remove the chapter's divisions, which were not there when Paul, Paul wrote a letter. He didn't write well, verse 2, verse 3. We added all of that about 300 years after the letter was written. I didn't add it. I said we. I personally wasn't there. Uh, but somebody decided to add that for flow and for ease of reading. And, and it helps us in memorizing Scripture. But Paul writes this letter and he comes right out of the resurrection and says, and now let's talk about the offering. Now, if you want a big ending to a movie, you don't talk about the offering at the end. But Paul didn't see a problem with that. In fact, the references to the offering are in the context of what he's just said about the resurrection. So in Paul's mind, he's talking about the resurrection and Christ changes life, and therefore, brethren, be immovable and steadfast, knowing that you're Work for the Lord is not in vain. In fact, look at the last verse of chapter 15. So he's talked about the resurrection. He says, therefore, in light of the resurrection, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding 
in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Take a breath now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you should put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So let me just give you two quick thoughts here. First of all, giving is a work of the Lord. Giving is a work of the Lord. Remember we've talked about oftentimes that you don't silo your faith into, well, I serve, but I don't give, or I give, but I don't serve. Uh, I, I give my testimony, but I, but I don't serve the church. Or I serve the church, but I never give my testimony. Giving is a work of the Lord. Secondly, giving is one way we abound in the work of the Lord. We abound, and it calls the work of the Lord to abound in our giving, in our investing in kingdom business. And so here's what Paul is doing. Paul is writing to what was probably the wealthiest church in all of the Roman Empire. Corinth was massive with its temples and with all the things that it had. It was a massively wealthy church, unlike some of the other ones he probably wrote to. And so he writes to them, and he's taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which was incredibly poor. The church that Garrett preached at and Stephen and Alex preached at on the Uganda mission trips, those are not rich churches. You know, if they got $50, they got a lot. Those are not rich churches. And, and by the way, by the world standard, there's not a person in this room that is not considered rich by the world's standards. 1.5 billion people live in poverty, abject poverty. You take the refugees, you take all the other things that are going on, and we are all rich even if we are on the minimal of incomes. And so Paul is writing to them, and notice he is writing to a predominantly Gentile church adversarial relationships between Jews and Gentiles, racism, prejudice, arrogance, hatred, all that stuff going on. And he's writing to a predominantly Gentile church, converted pagans, and saying, you need to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, this would have been unheard of. Remember the disciples they didn't want to go through Samaria. Why? Because they considered the Samaritans like half-breeds. And Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. In other words, what Jesus was trying to say in his ministry and his witness and everything about how we think, quit looking on the outside and remember, it's a heart issue. It's about saved and lost. It's about knowing God or rejecting God. And so Paul writes and he says, you need to make this gift to them. And the church was suffering primarily for two reasons. Number one was famine. An incredible famine had hit the land of Israel. And it had impacted the church in Jerusalem. Now, in Israel, they don't get a whole lot of rain. Their rainy season is basically from about mid-November to the 1st of February. 
The rest of the time, you hardly ever see it rain. And so if there's a drought, it doesn't take long for a famine to set in. And so there were needs. They didn't have food. They didn't have the resources that they need. But secondly, there was failure in the Jerusalem church. And here's what I mean by that. They had had the apostles. They had seen 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. They had seen thousands of others come to Christ. It is possible that by this time that the church at Jerusalem had somewhere between 70 and 100,000 members. But they had failed because they didn't want to get out of their comfort zone. They did what a lot of American churches do. They wanted to have church, but they didn't want to be the church. They wanted to go to church, but they didn't want going to church to impact anything about how they lived, about their lives. And so they wanted the privileges without the responsibilities. They wanted all the blessings. And so God had to shake them up. And so if you remember the book of Acts, they call the deacons in Acts chapter 6. By Acts chapter 7 and 8, this deacon rises to the front named Stephen. And Stephen, we're going to actually look at him tonight. Stephen becomes a vocal witness for the gospel and ends up being martyred. Persecution begins to rise on the church in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, which Jesus had condemned as hypocrites because they checked all the boxes, but they didn't have a heart for God. And so he looks at all of them and he says, you're hypocrites. And he says, this temple is going to go down and they're going to come in and they're going to take over. We're in 70 AD. That happens. It has not happened at this point, but Jerusalem is under growing pressure. And so not only is persecution coming, but some who were in the church were wealthy, had either left or lost their wealth because the Jewish leaders were putting pressure on them and the Roman government was putting pressure on them. And so all these things are going on and then the church scatters. And there's a group left back in Jerusalem. And they're probably on their mission Sunday saying, boy, I'm, I'm sure glad we sent out some of those apostles and some of those people to Antioch. And I tell you what, we're making a difference. But they weren't doing anything. They were dying. They were absolutely dying because they had forgotten that to maintain, they have to expand the kingdom. They can't just check the boxes. And so Paul says, we're going to take up an offering for them and we're going to bless them, although it, they may be disobeying what they know to be doing. Although they're in a famine, that is something they can't control. But these other issues, they can control. But here's what he's saying to the church at Corinth. I want you to model for the church at Jerusalem, the first church. I want you to model for them what Christ-likeness looks like, what serving and giving looks like. So as I was studying this, I found seven principles that we need to obey and take to heart. Principle number one. Number one, giving is not optional. Chapter 16 and verse 1. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Giving's not optional. It's the essence of God. For God so loved the world, he... Some of you didn't know that, did you? 
For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave, why? Because he loved. He loved and he gave, he gave and he loved. And so he says now, Corinthians, you probably heard about what I told the church at Galatia to do. I'm expecting you to do the same thing. You're not going to get off the hook on this. So giving is not optional. It's the essence of Christianity. And, and he says, basically, if you want to know how I view giving as an apostle, it, it is essential, not optional. It is a part of our spiritual DNA. Is it a part of who we are, what we do, and why we do it, and what we do it for, not to be recognized? By the way, they didn't get to write off anything on their income taxes for giving. They were just told to give. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Now, if you haven't received anything, don't give. But if you've received something, you ought to give. You say, well, I haven't received anything. Uh, where'd that last breath come from? Uh, where'd the job come from? Where'd the roof over your head come from? Where'd your salvation come from? Where'd the ability to live in a free country where you can worship, you can speak your mind, you can even make an idiot out of yourself on social media if you want to. Where'd that come from? Somebody gave you that right. We've all received... As you've received, freely give. We have all received something in some way from someone. A blessing, an honor. We've received friends, the church. And so these truths are not just for people. And here's what has happened in the American church over time. We think that giving is just for people with a lot of money. But I want to tell you, in 40 plus years in ministry, I have met more greedy middle-income people than I've met greedy rich people. I've met a lot of middle and lower income people that hold on to money and make money a God. And by the way, remember, the people that Jesus talked to were by and large in poverty. And he said, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, you give to God what's God's. And, and so it is not optional. Secondly, it, but yeah, let me just say this before I get to the second one. In Corinth, most of them were saved but still serving as slaves in the Roman Empire. Or they were poor. The amazing thing about what happened in the church in the first century was many of the slaves came to Christ first and they became the deacons and the elders and the leaders of the church. And then later on, some of their masters got saved and the leadership of the church was the people that worked for the masters. Now, put that in your spiritual pipe and smoke it for a while. Secondly, it is to be done weekly, on the first day of the week. So this is an indication that the church gathered on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Saturday's the last day of the week. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. They gathered on the first day of the week on Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus was raised on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And so they met weekly to worship, to pray, to study. It was not sporadic. And they met weekly because of the resurrection. Every time we gather on Sunday, it is a reminder to us that on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we shouldn't come in pooch mouth, as Tom Ellick would say. 
and walking on our lips and complaining and whining because if there hadn't been that first first day when Jesus rose, we'd have no reason to come. And so it is to be done weekly. They were to bring an offering weekly. So Paul puts these truths together. Resurrection brings new life, new thinking, a new day, new actions, new priorities. Thirdly, it is personal. Each one of you. It is personal. Nobody's left out. Not children, not widows, not singles, not students. All are to obey. Each one of you. Whether it's a check or text to give or whether it's a penny or a nickel or a dollar or a quarter or whatever it is, each one is to give. Parents, you are doing your children injustice if you're doing all the giving and not teaching them to give. You are teaching them to hoard if you are not teaching them to give. You plan for it? Each one of you to put aside and save. Each one of you to put aside and save. So you plan for it. Now here's, here's why he says to do this. Do it on the first of the week. Because in that day, if you had a job, you got paid at the end of the day. So you would go. You look at the parables, the parable of the vineyard keeper. You look at all the stories in the Bible. They come at the end of their work to get paid. So you got paid at the end of the day. So the principle was you get what you got paid that day. You go home in a box, in a jar, somewhere, and you say, now here's what I've got, and this much I'm setting aside so that I can give on the first day of the week. Now, why is that important? Because then my giving is not based on emotions, it's based on obedience. And I'm thinking about it through the week. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to give? And so he's asked them, each one of you, to put aside and save, to give, to meet this need that is coming. That they are going to have an opportunity to help with, with the church at Jerusalem. Now, let me, let me tell you why this is important for you. Every day, you get something on social media or a letter in the mail or somebody calls you or texts you and asks you for money. And then you're in a quandary. What do I do? You can't say yes to everybody. And so what laying aside on the first day of the week does, it says, well, this is already committed. This, I know where this is going. Now, whatever else comes along, that's, that's optional. But then you're not responding to emotional, and it also keeps you from going, boy, that was a really, that was a really big plea, man. And I tell you what, they, they, really need, they really need some help. Let me go over here and get this that I was laying aside for God, and I'll give it to them because I really like them. Uh-uh. That's subjective giving. Giving based on how you feel. Listen, I can make a video, and I can get guys in this church to make a video, and by the end of it, you'll throw your wallet and your savings account and tell us the access code to your stock market. But that's not biblical giving. Biblical giving does not act on emotion. Biblical giving acts on obedience. And when I obey God and do what God tells me to do with my giving, listen, they didn't know one member of the church at Jerusalem. 
They don't know anybody there. They say, well, where's this going? I've never been to Jerusalem, not going to Jerusalem. Why am I doing this? Lay it aside at the first of the week. Why? Because you're going to be bombarded. Now, all those things are legitimate needs. I mean, you can't go anywhere now and not be asked for money. You know, you're standing there buying dog food. Would you like to donate to homeless dogs? And everybody that's behind you in the line goes, wonder how heartless he really is. He looks like the pastor at Sherwood. I wonder if he's going to. Sweetheart, slide over there and see if he presses $1 or two. Would you like to donate to this? Would you like to donate to that? Listen, everybody in the world is asking for your money, but God says you owe the money to me. Then I give you the ability to make wise decisions about what you do beyond that. You see, if God is standing in line for our resources, like somebody at the checkout line at PetSmart saying, could I have a dollar today? Don't you care that people are lost and need Jesus? Could I have a dollar today? Then you may or may not feel like people need Jesus in that moment. And you'll make a decision based on your emotions, not based on obedience. That's why he says, lay it aside on the first day of the week. In other words, plan your giving. Objective giving is to the church. I do what God tells me to do, and then if an opportunity comes up and God has blessed me and God has allowed me to do something, I can say, yes, let's do something. Because you can't take away from what God's trying to do to build the kingdom, because yes, I did. By the way, I did, so you know, I did give $2 for the dogs. Number five, we give as God has given to us, as he may prosper. Now, we, we don't have time to dive into all this, but the starting point, obviously, in the Old Testament is with the tithe. The tithe precedes the law. If you hear, ever hear anybody say, well, the tithe's, tithe's the law, the tithe came in hundreds of years before the law was given. And so the tithe precedes the law, and we say it's 10%, but really for a Jew, a tithe would have been about 30% of their income, or their flocks, or their fields, whatever it was. It would have been, by the time you added everything up, it would have been about 30% of what they had. Why? As a reminder that it's the Lord's, the tithe means 10%, but here's, here's where we get messed up. And you ought to write this down somewhere because it'll liberate you. Tithing is bringing. Offering is giving. I am supposed to bring my tithe. I offer my gifts willingly. When I tithe, I'm just doing what God says I ought to do. And, and I've always said, and you've heard this a thousand times from any preacher worth his salt, that why would we give less under grace than the Jews gave under law? And so we do it as we prosper. Now, let's just look at this for a minute. For a person with means, 10% is not a sacrifice. John D. Rockefeller, when he died, was asked, how much money, more money do you need? He said, just a little bit more. 
In today's dollars, Rockefeller was worth $328 billion. Billion with a B. I just need a little bit more. For what? You see, we can get more stuff, and then when we get more stuff, then our kids have to go through it when we die. And this is, let me tell you what the conversation is going to be when you're dead if you have kids. Why did they keep all this stuff? You see, what, what Paul is saying, if God prospers you, use it for kingdom. If God blesses you, find a way to use it for kingdom. Don't, don't lavish it on yourself. Don't squander it. Invest it in kingdom business. Number six, it's not about pressure. It's not about pressure. So that no collection be made when I come. Now you imagine, can you imagine? Just think about it. Paul said, Paul not saying a word about this. He's talked about the resurrection. Oh, I tell you what, we're going to show up and see Paul preach. I'm telling you, oh, I hope he preaches about the resurrection. I bet he's going to tell us a testimony about when he saw Jesus in the sky and he was blinded. Oh, that's going to be a glorious sermon. I hope they record that. You think they'll put it on a podcast? I want to make sure. I'd like to get a video of it. I want to see that. Maybe his thorn in the flesh shows up. I don't know what, I'm going to be there. I want to make sure all this is going on. And Paul says, so that no pressure be can you imagine sitting in church? And I didn't have church like this. They're probably all sitting around on the same level. And Paul walking around saying, let's talk a little bit about money here, buddy. Paul could have been a little intimidating. Paul said, I'm not coming to intimidate you into giving. I want you to figure that out before I get there. I want you to have already decided what you're going to do and how you're going to do it before I ever say a word. He's, so he says, so that the collection be made when I come. He didn't want to pressure them. Then lastly, giving should be handled responsibly. So what Paul says in verses 3 and 4 is, look, I'm, I'm writing a letter to say to you, I'm going to ask you to find people that you trust who have integrity and that are responsible, and I trust them. I may go with them, I may not. But I'm going to trust them to handle this collection. Now, how does that have anything to do with the kingdom? Well, it has something to do with Sherwood. I have not been to a finance committee meeting in this church in 23 years. Not one. I haven't been to a budget planning meeting. That's why we have capable, godly men on our finance team. The executive pastor, he handles the budget. He handles what we do with our resources. We have an annual audit. You ought to write some of the ministries you give to and ask them to see their audit. Ministries that are taking in 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars a year that own three jets and five homes over five and 6,000 square feet each that are telling you they need your money to stay on the air. No, they need your money to live off of you. We require an audit to make sure we're handling our books properly. We require two signatures on checks. We have accountability with our banks. We have meetings with our banks on our loans with Meet the Need. We cannot borrow a dime without going to the banks that we already 
are indebted to with Meet the Need and saying, these are the things that are going on, this is what we need to do. We have accountability and checks and balances with the banks. We have accounting committee of lay people that count the offerings. Nobody on our staff is back there counting the offerings on Sunday. We have a counting committee of lay people who do that. And finally, I would just say to you, I don't know what any of you give. I know what one person in this church gives, and that's me. I know what I give. I don't know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. I care that you give, but I don't want to know what you give because I don't want the devil to use that for me to start saying, well, I'm going to minister to them differently. I'm going to talk to them differently because they're not giving anything to this church. You see, if we were like Corinth, here's what would happen. Huh, these people are in the hospital. Let's not send any staff to them. They're not supporting the church. These people have a funeral. Let's not have anybody help them with this funeral because they haven't given anything in years. Uh, when you don't know that, you just minister and you just do what you're supposed to do. And so every day we have a staff member that's at the hospital. Every time we have a death, we have people that visit and, and do and work and serve and preach the funerals and help the families. Why? Because that's what ministry is and that's what we do. I don't know what you give, but I know this. Giving is an opportunity, and it's a privilege. And I do know you cannot outgive the Lord. I know that. And when God blesses, when we prosper, we should give more. God longs to stretch us to give. Amy Carmichael said this, You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Let's pray together. My prayer for you is a part of your response to this message is that you would take these principles and take them before the Lord. That you would ask God what you need to do. That's between you and the Lord. The opportunities are here. The responsibilities are ours. David Livingston said, I place no value in any, anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. Do your investments, does your will, does your spending, do your choices reflect that you understand that God is the owner of it all and he is the one that has blessed you and provided for you in immeasurable ways. And that's whether you're on welfare or whether you're of means. All we have comes from the Lord. Father, I thank you for what we've been able to accomplish this past year good report that we're going to get next week about how you've blessed this church and the opportunities that are ours for this coming year. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us with an understanding that 
all the good gifts that we have come from above. And if we, being evil, give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give to us? Lord, turn our hearts, our heads, to wisdom and discernment, to obedience to Scripture, so that we can live in the blessing and in the flow of walking in step with you in every area of our lives, not just one or two, but every area of our lives. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.